This is Out of the Crisis. I am Eric Reese. Don't you wish we had done more to invest in science, basic research, or evidence-based practices in the before times? It's hard to imagine that if we had, the damage caused by the pandemic would be so immense. But we didn't. We didn't prioritize science. We didn't let scientists drive our public policy. We didn't prioritize the experimentation, the groundwork, the foundation building that progress and resilience require. We can't change the past, but we do have a say in the future, if we will it. Robert Reinhardt has always been interested in science. Many of you will know Robert as the founder of Soylent, which he started out of his kitchen and then grew into a nationwide phenomenon. When the virus began to roll across the world, Robert started investigating how he could help. His journey led him to the realization that we have huge gaps in the support system for our researchers. It's easy to say that companies, universities, and the government should be doing more to find a cure, but that ignores years of overlooking the importance of the work of those studying infectious disease. And in many cases, the lack of sophisticated tooling that they urgently need. There are major gaps in our system that are limiting progress on vaccines and therapeutics and so much more. These gaps are what led Robert to found a public benefit corporation called the Corona Initiative. The Corona Initiative is focused on building the tools, the building blocks, the accelerants needed by scientists studying the virus. Hopefully for all of us, the Corona Initiative is a successful catalyst for SARS-CoV-2 research. But let's not let this be a one-off phenomenon. We need to start reimagining our institutions to ensure lasting progress. We need to find those foundational flaws across all parts of our society. When we find weaknesses, sometimes we will need to plug the gaps. Other times, we will need a complete reorganization, a transformation which may yet be painful. But now is the time to begin this work. Our institutions are already under tremendous strain, and some of them are falling apart around us. Can we find a way to use this moment to lay the foundations of future progress? Here is my conversation with Robert Reinhardt. Hi, my name is Robert Reinhardt. I'm general partner at Mars Bio VC and director of the Corona Initiative. Formerly, I served as CEO of Soylent Nutrition. I invented the uh, nutrition beverage product known as Soylent, which the company continues to grow and flourish today. The title of the show is Out of the Crisis, but it's hard to focus on leading when you aren't taking care of yourself. So could we start with how are you doing? How's your family? What's your quarantine setup? My quarantine setup is a, I have a decent lab at home, so I, c- I could run basic experiments. I had that before coronavirus. I just, I love running experiments on my own and I'm really excited about, you know, I don't really like the term biohacking, but, you know, the, there's a lot of, you know, fun and educational uh, biology and chemistry experiments you can do at home. Like I did some polymer synthesis and, you know, some, some basic yeast genetic engineering and uh, I also bake a lot of bread at home where knowledge of yeast metabolism and ratio of yeast to lactobacilli comes in handy. I also really recommend in getting a nice webcam, you know, for someone that spends a lot of time on, on Zoom, you know, phone cameras and laptop cameras, I think it doesn't put you at the, at the best angle. So I have a webcam and, and a headset and also connecting all the various messaging apps into the web browser and the desktop, I highly recommend. So, you know, I don't really have to use my phone during the day. I can control everything and all the flow of messages and calls from from the PC. And uh, I've also been spending a lot of time on the phone with with my family uh, and, and my mom in Atlanta. So one one silver lining in a crisis can be you know bringing people together. And you know I have heard from old friends and colleagues and people that I, I some people I haven't talked to in years that uh, you know I checked up on them or or they checked up on me. And so I've been spending, you know, really a lot of time investing in some of my older relationships and, you know, talking to my, to my family, which I really enjoy. Was there a moment that you remember where the reality of the pandemic struck you? I think it was a certain paper that I read that kind of seemed to really get to the a strong scientific basis that this virus was a little different. 
it was a specific paper on on coronavirus entering the brainstem. And, you know, I don't think that is the most interesting effect. And I really think, you know, at this point, maybe that paper was a little overblown. But, you know, the deeper I dug, the more it started to look like, you know, there was something really serious here. I mean, people that know me know that I, I don't spend a lot of time like reading press, honestly. You know, I don't I don't really follow, have any social media or read a lot of the news, frankly, because I feel like a lot of it is overblown and a lot of it is just wrong. And there's very little accountability as to, you know, who is right about what. And, you know, a lot of it seems to be just uh, overblowing. You know, I felt I felt like the news was just moving on from one crisis to the next. And maybe this was just another, you know, crisis without a big backing. But, you know, I guess that was a hard lesson for me that every so often something is real. And I, I should have been paying better attention. And, you know, it, it really started to get the attention of the scientific community. And once some of the papers started coming out that showed that, you know, this was very interesting, this was very different, there was something special about this virus, I wanted to get to the bottom of that. I wanted to understand the virus better. I wanted to understand why it was different from other coronaviruses. I want to understand where it came from. And I wanted to understand various ways that we could fight it. But tell us a little bit about your background. Most people, I think, at least in the technology community, know you as the inventor of Soylent and the company by the same name. Uh, How did you get into food science and what what were you doing before that? It was, it, was a, it was a bit of a roundabout path. Before that, I was an electronics engineer. So uh, before Stoilent, I was working on a, on a company building uh, wireless radios. I was developing a, a mesh network um, that I envisioned being useful in, in the developing world and, and for the Internet of Things. And, you know, I really believed in, in selling hardware. I mean, I, I, I did study computer science and, you know, I love software, especially open source software, but I just like the challenge of hardware. You know, I, I liked having something physical. I liked having something tactile. I liked dealing with the bomb. And, you know, I, I wanted to find this, this intersection of software and hardware that would lead to a really uh, great product. And so I went through Y Combinator on this radio company. And afterwards, it seems like I was living in the Tenderloin in, in San Francisco and, you know, my company was basically running out of money. You know, I was trying to reduce my burn basically to zero. And then around me, you know, I, I saw a lot of poverty and hunger, you know, on, on, this, on the streets around me and in, in my own bank account and, and nutrition. And I started to think, you know what, I've been so focused on electronics hardware. What I really need is better food. And I really started to see, you know, food and, and nutrition as hardware. And, you know, formula is kind of like a bomb. Then your manufacturing needs to have even tighter controls. And, you know, you're, you're selling a consumable product, which is, is a you know, great business model. And I felt like that was an opportunity to make a, even a bigger impact than providing more people with Internet access was providing them with access to healthy food. So I think that's how I really got into health. And I also saw, you know, a real lack of, you know, scientific rigor in the field of nutrition. You know, I, I wanted there to be more and better scientific studies. And I also saw an incredibly bright future for agricultural biology. I, it seemed like it was a field that was held back a lot, mostly by people misunderstanding the technology or, or sloppy use of the technology. And, you know, I, I would argue that a lot of the more impactful innovations in human history were in, in agriculture, you know, whether it be synthetic fertilizer or, or you know, crop rotation or seed drills, you know, a, a lot of the technology that I think, you know, really enables what someone would call our modern world is related to food and health. So I decided I was going to devote uh, my career to that. And, you know, furthermore, I just saw such a bright future for, I don't even know if the term synthetic biology was coined at the time, but, you know, I started hanging out at these kind of biohacker spaces like BioCurious and just saw, you know, such an acceleration of kind of the basic tools needed uh, to do research in biology. And it really reminded me of the early days of software and hardware and kind of this hacker culture. And I just knew that biology was going to be the next big thing. It just, it does remind you of the Homebrew Computer Club, doesn't it? A hundred percent. There is this history of people using science to advance human civilization in profound ways through food improvements in agriculture, improvements in uh, food delivery and cultivation systems. But we've also seems like historically struggled with science around food. The, the science of nutrition has been plagued by longstanding wrong beliefs and kind of cargo cult, you know, consensus around, you know, ideas about what is healthy, what causes obesity, what causes heart disease that have been proven to be wrong and yet have lingered for a long time. 
And to me, it seems like it has this kind of special resonance with the current crisis because we've had this problem where we know that we need to respect scientific authorities, at least those of us who are educated uh, have that ingrained in us. And yet sometimes those authorities do get things wrong and we have not really figured out as a society, how do we balance between critical inquiry and being willing to challenge status quo without kind of falling into a blind contrarianism that you know is politically expedient? So talk a little bit about why you think food science in particular has been such a polarized and difficult thing to get right. I think it's deceptively difficult and deceptively complicated. You know, on the one hand, everyone can can kind of cook, right? But do, do they really know what's going on? You know, the chemistries involved are, are incredibly complex. And, you know, nutrition, you know, it's, you know, on the one hand, you know, balance your diet, eat, you know, not too much of this and and, and, and more of that, but, you know, the whole network and, and system of how your body uses it and interacts with its environment is, is just so incredibly complex. And it's, it's also, uh, you know, something that traditional tools of science, like running a controlled experiment, make it very difficult. You know, it's, it's very difficult to run a controlled, uh, repeatable experiment in nutrition because everybody's different and it, and it takes so long. And it's, you know, at, at the end of the day, you have very high level inputs and very high level outputs, and it's very difficult to get into the underlying mechanisms uh, of a lot of this. And, and also, you know, everyone, food is, there's such a personal and emotional attachment to food. And, you know, I, I, I think I can, you know, blame the press a little bit for latching on to some, you know, either a retracted or withdrawn papers or sloppy science and, you know, turning it into a salacious headline. And, you know, people are just so confused, you know, does, you know, coffee both gives you cancer and prevents cancer and, you know, you know soybean oil is, is the best oil and it's dangerous. And, you know, there, there's all this conflicting data because the experimental design and methods are, are complicated and, you know, you could easily design an experiment to, to vilify or sanctify pretty much any food or ingredient. You know, it's not the sort of thing that you can really do in a Petri dish or, or under a microscope. You know, it's, uh, it's very complicated. You had a personal connection to biology and a personal interest even before all this. You want to talk a little bit about that? I did. I always had a lot of respect for my father. He, you know, he went to the same school I did, Georgia Tech, and studied electrical engineering. And I think that was before they even had a, a computer science department. But I, I saw him. He, he worked as an engineer and, and then went into finance for, for many years and then was recruited to be president of a biotech company, diagnostics company. So on the one hand, I was always fascinated that, you know, one person could have these multiple disciplines throughout their career. And, he, you know, he really exemplified always reading and always studying and always learning. And so I, I knew I wanted that to be a component of my life. And I, I saw him, you know, just work so hard on this diagnostics company where he partnered with this scientist that had developed a, called it a risk assessment or a diagnostic, basically, uh, determine one's risk of uh, stroke and heart attack. And I mean, he had a personal connection to that as well, because he took the test and found out that he was about to have a stroke and was able to have a, a preventative stint, which, which, you know, saved his life and gave him many more years of life. So he had a personal attachment to that product. And, you know, I, I, I did as well. And even before that, I, I remember as a child him describing how he had, you know, this congenital heart defect and he had a, an artificial heart valve installed, which I could actually hear as a click. And he told me that, you know, part of his heart was basically made in a factory and uh, installed in his heart like a machine. And, you know, that allowed him to live much longer. And I remember as a kid, that just blew my mind. That was the coolest thing ever that you could, you know, it, it really showed that, you know, like, okay, our, our body is, you know, we, I was, I was raised, you know, religious and, and my father was very devout and, you know, believed strongly and, and, you know, the soul and the spirit and everything. But as far as the body goes, I thought that really blew my mind. You could basically make something in a factory and install it into your organ and it would improve it or make it last longer and give you many more years of life. So I always thought that was really cool. And then he, I saw him work on the, on this diagnostic company for years. And it started out as, as an ELISA assay, um, which needs to be run in a, in a laboratory setting. And then he started talking about this technology where you could basically take the test out of the laboratory and put it into this very small, convenient strip of paper, basically, which, you know, allowed this, this point of care test to, to be used, you know, in the field. And, you know, one of the markets they were going after were professional athletes and, you know, knowing if they had a concussion and the other market were, you know, people um, either 
suffering from or, or at risk of stroke. And there are clear advantages to be able to use this test kind of in the field, literally in, in the sense of athletes or, or at home. And, you know, fascinated me that you could take this technology that needed this, you know, advanced machine in this clean, advanced laboratory and to kind of put it on this small mobile device. I had some familiarity with, with that diagnostic space. And unfortunately, he, he never really saw it get, get to market. It was a long and difficult road. And and he ended up passing away last year, which was very hard on me and my mom and my family. But, you know, one of the last th- things he, he said to me before he passed was never give up. And I saw him just through all the difficulties with, with the FDA and investors and science and patent attorneys and, you know, all, all the, you know, the hurdles of the company. He just, he never gave up. And, um, you know, through that process, I was introduced to, you know, that diagnostic technology and, and the team that helps develop it. And then earlier this year, when you know, COVID, COVID started becoming more widespread and I became more and more interested in the virus, I thought, hey, this is, you know, we really need this type of, of diagnostic. And, and crucially, I understood the difference between an antigen diagnostic and a serological diagnostic. And when I saw these, you know, it's, the technology is called lateral flow assay. When I saw a lot of these, you know, tests coming out that were only, that were only serologic, I just, I knew that we needed an antigen test. I knew that we needed a better test. And also I knew that I, you know, was familiar with that technology and I had uh, the tools and resources and people uh, needed to make a superior diagnostic. So that's what I started working on. It's a really poignant story about your father and that, that long struggle. And I, I often think about people who design these systems, you know, uh, policymakers and big companies and lawyers and, you know, the, the approvals that are required, the the bureaucracy that are required really to get anything done in this world. They all seem like they have this like built-in assumption that there's always more time. You know, a slight <laughs> delay won't hurt anybody. What, what's, what's the cost of delay? And it's only these moments when you realize like, you know, delay is the one thing we really can't afford because time is short. And if we, we actually make it easier to get things done, then more things will get done. And that's not to say we can't have safety and, and we can't do a good job making sure that uh, a certain process is followed or that, yeah. that, that is possible, but just that we have a kind of compassion and kindness towards those who are trying to get things done in this world. It's, it's remarkably difficult. And I just, I so resonate with that story. I feel like any of us, it could, could be the story of any of us who've tried to create anything that, you know, the delays just add up and they add up and they add up. The cost of delay is, is, is deceptively enormous you know, especially when it comes to people's health. And, I, you know, I never, I never really got it. You know, it was, you know, the way he described it to me when I was younger was this, you know, chicken and egg problem where he was trying to raise money for this diagnostics company and all the investors would ask, well, are you FDA approved? And he would say, well, no, that's why we need the money to get our FDA. Mm-hmm. And then the FDA would say, you know, oh, you need $20 million to run all these clinical studies. And he said, well, no one will give me that money without, you know, the FDA, you know, giving the test some blessing. And so he was just caught in this quagmire for, for years and years. And what really got me is that the test seemed to have almost no downside. It's an in vitro diagnostic. I mean, you're, you, you take a, a drop of someone's blood and, you know, you, you, you tell them if they're at risk for, for, for stroke or, or you, you know, you, you, you told them some, you know, crucial information about a concussion. I mean, it's, it seemed like what's, what's the risk? of an in vitro mm-hmm. diagnostic, you know, it seemed vanishingly small. And look at all these people that have undiagnosed concussions or are at high risk of stroke. I mean, it's killing all these people, you know, so the cost of delay is immense. I remember when the, when the crisis first broke and I was really grappling with what this was going to mean for my company and my family and all the different people in the ecosystem that I have relationships with, I, I had this moment of almost wanting to have like a wake for all the projects that will never launch now because they were not sensitive to cost of delay. And it seemed like, well, we can always wait a week, an extra week, an extra day, an extra this, an extra that. And then, you know, the crisis comes, the world has changed. And the things that were launched before that happened are still launched, but the things that were not, many of them now never will be. And I guess maybe you just have to go through that collective trauma to really internalize that lesson that that time really is scarce. And we who who create those systems, investors, lawyers, policymakers, uh, CEOs, all kinds of leaders, we have to be thinking about the builders and the people who create things in our midst. Yeah. And what are we doing to make their lives more bearable to cut down on those delays? Because even if in the end, the test was not successful or the startup fails or the product is a flop, we can mitigate those costs pretty easily. Exactly. But we can never get back the time that we waste. You've, you've still made progress. 
You know, I, I think that the only surefire way to fail is to do nothing. You know, if 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 you make a mistake, you can you can make the test better. You can start a new company. You know that the you know the the process of developing the product and the people you hired and the people that that you trained. You know, all those people have new skills. You know, all of the people that make the components got paid. You know, progress was was made. You know, I don't see success as as binary. You know, I I, I think failure is an action, and and constant delays and. You know, if you're taking an action, even if it's, you know, it's usually a winding path to success, you know, you just need to keep moving. Amen to that. Tell us about the Corona Initiative. Who else is involved in the project and, and how did it come about? So it came about when I was, you know, seeking not just to develop this diagnostic, but also improve the scientific funding process around coronavirus research. You know, it was clear that, you know, the NIH grant process was going to be very, very slow. And some, a lot of people had, you know, projects that could yield uh, substantial data related to the virus in, in weeks or, or a month. And all the universities were suddenly, you know, closed down to everything except for coronavirus research. And I thought, hey, this is a great time to do science. You know, ev- everyone's focused on this. And so I, I had this proposal I put together that, you know, I'm going to work on this diagnostic, but crucially, I'm also going to work on kind of platform tools and picks and shovels for uh, for research and that I'm going to use, but I'm also going to tell them to other researchers that they could use. And I'm also going to do some small research grants to help the general understanding of coronavirus. That proposal got the attention of Sam Altman, who was, you know, refreshingly decisive and invested in in the company. And, you know, initially we decided, so I was, you know, already a, a partner at this venture fund and we've been investing in biotech companies, you know, including diagnostic companies for, for a couple years. And so I asked him, you know, what what structure makes the most sense? You know, should I just do that, do this as a nonprofit? Should I do it under the management company of the fund? And you know, he suggested to just to make this a company, and and so I did so, and and he just invested in the company as, as a safe note. But I also wanted to to do this, you know, corporate designation, which is called the Public Benefit Corporation. And you know, ever since I began my entrepreneurial journey, I really believed in the idea of social entrepreneurship. And, you know, having this kind of like diversified bottom line where, you know, it's not just about, you know, near term profits. You know, you really want to see the whole system. You really want to see how your company treats its employees, treats its customers, treats the environment. What's, you know, taking a longer term view. You know, I just thought it was, you know, a a culture of of a company only being about only being about the money. I just don't think I also don't think that's the best way to make money. I think that it takes time to build a culture and build a company and, you know, focusing on the whole network and the whole system and, you know, what you do for other companies and what you do for, for the world, you know, is is a really important part of starting a company. And so I always like this idea of the public benefit corporation where, you know, it's not a nonprofit. You know, you do want to make money. You do want to commercialize. But, it you know, it's it's OK if you do something that doesn't have immediate bottom line impact. And so I thought, OK, well, I want to invest in some research that's going to benefit you know, the overall healthcare ecosystem and the overall research community. And that may not immediately impact the bottom line of the company, but that's okay. I still want to do that. So I wanted to make it a, a PBC, a public benefit corporation. But that, you know, a lot of the same mechanisms, you know, you, you can buy and sell stock, you know, you can sell the company, you can go public. So I really like this idea of the public benefit corporation. Sam Altman invested in it, and I immediately kicked off the projects that I had queued up. You know, things moved really, really quickly. I, you know, signed a contract. When, when was this? This was about eight weeks ago. So that was early March. Early March. Mm-hmm. So in, in the first week, I incorporated the company, got it funded, launched a website, and signed three research contracts and filed three patents. So it was, it was really nice to be able to hit the ground running. And those projects didn't, you know, they, they, they played out. So we, de- we developed uh, with, with City of Hope a, um, what's called a pseudovirus. And, you know, what was clear was one of the biggest limitations to studying the virus is that it's highly infectious. You know, nobody wants to deal with a live virus. To do so, you need what's called a BSL-3 facility, which is basically a clean room, but you need your staff uh, to be specially trained. And it's, it's a huge hassle and, you know, it's still risky. And, uh, you know, there's, there's not that many BSL-3 facilities. So, you know, what was really important to me is that there's a way to study this virus without the technicians being infected. And the way to do that is what's called a pseudovirus which is where you basically uh, recombinantly make a version of the virus that is you know, either identical or very similar, except it has its infectious DNA or RNA removed and replaced with, uh, with, replaced with a reporter gene. 
like uh, GFP or luciferase. Explain what a, a reporter gene is. A reporter gene is, so let's say you want to test the you know, functionality of the virus. You know, a common test would be like a viral entry or a viral attachment assay. So you want to get some cells that express this host cell, you know, surface receptor, ACE2, and you want to test like an antibody to see if that will block the virus from entering the cell. Great. So you, you're doing this in vitro, you know, you have these wells or these petri dishes and your virus, you mix it with the media and you mix it with your, you know, with, without any, with, you know, with your control virus will, of course, infect the cells. and then instead of making more virus, it will make a protein that's very easy to see under a microscope. So GFP is this uh, fluorescent protein. So they have these fluorescent microscopes and you can put your assay on the microscope. And then if the virus did indeed infect those cells, instead of making other viruses, they will make this fluorescent protein, which you can easily see under the microscope. And you can also, you know, quantify it to some degree and see the, you know, the relative light units, the relative degree of infection. And so you could run an assay where you have your, you know, control substance and you see the virus infect these cells. And it's very easy to tell that they infected them because they will literally glow green. And if you're testing something like an antibody that's supposed to block attachment or entry at different concentrations, then, you know, hopefully the viruses did not infect the cells and those will not glow. And so that's a way that you can, you know, test the viability of something like a monoclonal antibody therapy or, or different small molecules to, to, to test it without dealing with a live infectious version of the virus. But there's all sorts of other things you can do with a pseudovirus. You know, for, for us, we're, um, first thing we tested with a pseudovirus was the diagnostic itself. You know, would the diagnostic detect the pseudovirus, which would be far better data than just detecting a recombinantly expressed antigen? You know, especially spike protein. Spike protein is very unstable, it's floppy, it's difficult to, to make, and it's not, you know, the recombinant spike protein available is not full length. So it, it was this great tool for improving the uh, sensitivity of the diagnostic. Explain the difference between an antigen test and a serologic test and uh, pick up the story from when you were saying you saw some of the early research going into uh, COVID and you were concerned that there was uh, this kind of testing was missing. So just explain why that was so important to you. So a serologic test is, is great that it is kind of point of care. You know, it, it, you can do it in a clinic, you can do it at home, you don't need to. So the first test that came out were these um, uh, RNA PCR tests, which are very, which are great in terms of their accuracy. You know, you, you know the RNA sequence of the virus, you can amplify that on PCR and you can know to, pretty, to a pretty nice degree of certainty that you've seen the RNA for the virus and it is indeed the virus and it's indeed this virus and not another virus, uh, which is called specificity. But you need to collect the sample and send it to the lab and people need to wait days for results and you're dealing with infectious samples. So there's, you know, issues with the uh, PCR tests. So then the serological test, it's a lateral flow assay. And so you have this basically strip of paper and it's nitrocellulose. And on top of that goes this polymer membrane. And then in that is, is dissolved something like uh, the spike protein. And so that's your capture reagent. And then what happens is that your sample, which could be blood, it could be uh, saliva, some people are testing stool samples, could be nasal samples. But with the serological test, what you're really looking for are antibodies. And there are two different antibodies that they look for. There's the IgG and the IgM. And there are different categories of, of antibodies in the body. Uh, IgG is the most common. And what, what these serological tests look for is, is there something in your blood that is binding to this spike protein? And if so, they are conjugated to these nanoparticles or these nanoshells, which are basically these typically gold spheres on top of graphite, which are about 100 nanometer in diameter, and, and you can see them. So if, if you were to get a, a serological test, the plastic part is called the cassette. You were able to, if you broke that open, you would see this small strip of paper, and you would see these little kind of dark blue dots kind of scattered across it. So those are the nanoparticles. And so those, those are conjugated. And the sample and the, the, the membrane uses this capillary effect. Like if you have like a straw and a cup of water, you'll see the water climb up the sides of the straw due to surface tension. And so it uses a similar effect to draw a liquid across the, the, the membrane. And then if your antibodies are binding to this a spike protein, then they will collect on this line. And so this line is printed with the capture reagent 
and then if the conjugation reagent uh, binds to something, which you know in theory would be this uh, would be the spike protein, which means that you've made antibodies across against the coronavirus, it will collect on this line, and you will see this um, this signal. You will see this solid line show up on the test. It's nice to know. You know, it'd be good to know. Do you have antibodies against coronavirus? But there are some issues with that. First issue is that it takes time for your body to make antibodies. When you're exposed to something, especially coronavirus, which you know is, is somewhat adept at hiding from the immune system. One, you know, for example, the spike protein is very heavily glycosylated, similar to HIV, and that makes it physically and like you know biochemically, biophysically very difficult for antibodies to bind to. And you know the the way that it binds to the host cell receptor is it has this receptor binding domain that can be in these two different conformations, up or down. So it's it's tricky, you know. It's this binding site; it, it changes its shape, which makes it difficult to target. The exterior is glycosylated, which makes it very difficult to bind to, and so it is somewhat effective at avoiding the immune system. But but you will eventually make antibodies. However, it could take six six or more days. You know, the 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 sensitivity numbers reported in the serological tests are for six days after infection, and even then, you only get seventy five maybe 85% sensitivity. So you're going to be getting a lot of false negatives. And even when the test is used, you know, as designed and everything goes perfectly, there are, you know, several days where you are infectious and, and will still test negative. So the time it, it takes your body to make these antibodies is, is a big issue. Also, once you make antibodies, they'll stay in your bloodstream for years. And so what we're really measuring with the serological test is not who has the virus right now and who is infectious, but who has, you know, ever been exposed, which is interesting, but really we want to know who is infectious today. Let me just kind of pick up the story again from after Sam Altman invested and you said you had that great first week. Mm -hmm. You made the decision early March to go all in, even though you had a day job, you had plenty of other things you could have been working on to go all in on uh, tools and diagnostics around COVID. You had that great first week, you raised money, you filed patents, you, you, you were up and running. What happened next? Then uh, I started making progress every day. So we, we started getting in, you know, for the diagnostic, we started screening different conjugation and, and capture reagents for the pseudovirus. You know, we ordered plasmids and, and, and started expressing and, and purifying the product for the structural biology studies. We started crystallizing proteins. So we, we were pretty busy. How did you create the pseudovirus? Uh, so there are four different plasmids that you transfect into uh, mammalian cell. Um, HEC-293T uh, is a very common one. And then we use this transfection reagent I like called uh, Fugene uh, from Promega and the, the plasmids themselves. But now it's important to realize that the, the plasmids are um, uh, based on, on lentivirus and you know, HIV is a type of lentivirus. And so you do want to do this work in, in a BSL-3 facility. So CityVope has this BSL-3 facility so they can deal with these potentially infectious plasmids, but the product itself is not infectious. So you get these plasmids and then you put them all together in the cell and then you're, you're basically making this custom virus in a, in a human cell. You, you said you were partnering with somebody else who has that kind of lab to make the pseudovirus. So just can you just kind of explain that bit? Were they one of the people you gave a grant to, or just I'm trying to figure out the, how these all things connect together? It, it's a research contract. So we signed a contract with City of Hope, which is this great um, medical institution, and they had the BSL3 lab. I see. And they were able to do that work. So explain the role of City of Hope in all this. City of Hope is a medical institution. It's a, it's a hospital that also does research. So City of Hope made the pseudovirus. I think one of the things that's going to be hard for those who are not from a scientific or research background to understand is something you said early on in the story, which is that even though we're in a time of crisis, even though every university lab is shuttered except for their work on the coronavirus, even still the traditional science funding mechanisms are not a good fit. Can you explain what, what is wrong and then therefore what is needed? What is needed is decisive, even if they're small grants for projects that will produce data in the span of months, not years. What's an example? An example of a project like that would be a lot of the structural biology studies have been fantastic. So at this, you know, for example, getting the structure of the spike protein, which was done, I think his name was McClellan at, at UT Austin. 
so the spike protein, it's, it's difficult to express, it's difficult to purify, and it's, it's quite large. But structural biology tools, so structural biology is basically getting a three-dimensional map of a biological thing, you know, a protein, an enzyme. Um, people have even visualized the whole virus. And, and that's one thing I, you know, was uh, started looking for and supporting was this structural biology studies of the, you know, full-length spike protein and, and the whole virus. You know, that's, that's very crucial because it allows you to get a simulation of the virus protein or the whole virus into uh, a computer. And today there are all these very useful and very sophisticated uh, simulation and design tools which allow you to design therapeutics and antibodies to target these proteins. And so once the scientific community had the structure of the spike protein, which is basically its shape, but it's not just its shape, it's its elemental and its amino acid composition. And, you know, there are a set number of elements used in biology, and there's a set number of amino acids, and those have known, you know, dynamic physical forces. And so we can, you know, it's, it's imperfect, but we can, in simulation, in software and computers, we can design antibodies and, and peptides and microantibodies. We can design all these things that will bind to or disrupt um, the functioning of, of the virus and design therapeutics. So... Structural biology is something that also doesn't take years. That, you know, once you have a purified sample, if it's small enough, then you uh, crystallize it and you shoot it with x-rays. And based on the, uh, what's called the diffraction pattern, you can infer the structure of the protein. And if it's a larger protein, you use what's called cryo-EM, where you flash freeze it and then put it under an electron microscope. And from there, use these advanced software techniques to infer uh, the three-dimensional structure uh, of something larger. I think it's hard for people really to understand this disconnect between the billions, tens of billions, gosh, it's going to be hundreds of billions of dollars that will ultimately be dedicated to research and recovery from the pandemic. So if if all of these major funders, governments, the largest research institutions in the world are making these massive grants, how can it be that this fundamental research that can have such important results so quickly how is that not being funded? You talked about the need for decisive action for quick small grants. I think I know the answer to this, but I, I want to hear it from the perspective of the laboratory. Why is that important and why is that missing? I mean, you know, the NIH has its process and they don't want to make a mistake and they don't want to look bad and they have all the time in the world. Comes back to cost of delay, doesn't it? Uh, a lot of it comes back to cost of delay. And, you know, I think the NIH is an overwhelming force for good and, you know, puts billions of dollars towards scientific research and that's fantastic. But if you want to do something new or innovative or fast, you know, the NIH is probably not where, where you're going to go. And, you know, was, what's funny, I was, I was mapping research uh, just today and found that um, in the past uh, 15 years, the NIH alone has funded $127 million to research coronavirus. And, you know, a number of, of publications have come out of this. But I just thought, you know, how could we not have a diagnostic with 15 years and $127 million? And then, you know, reading through the papers, the paper quality is, is pretty strong. You know, there's a lot of great basic science and basic research that, that happened. And, you know, on, on the one hand, I, I do think that there's a role for, you know, basically higher risk tolerance, faster, kind of like an early stage investment mentality in, in mm -hmm. research and academia. I think that'd be really important. And there's a fantastic group called uh, fastgrants.org that I think is doing some really great work there. But I also think uh, there's this uh, disconnect between, you know, research and commercialization. You know, the NIH didn't have a grant you know, to make a diagnostic. Now they do. Now they have a $500 million program uh, to try to make an antigen diagnostic, which is exactly what I'm working on. But all those years and all those tens of millions of dollars, you know, that was going just to research. And there was, there was no program to actually make a diagnostic or, or actually make a vaccine you know, I, I guess the NIH was depending on, on the private market to just figure that out, and no, nobody really went for it. Why not? I mean, but you know, biopharma is it's it's kind of top down. You know, the NIH was was this way too. You know, the NIH has all been about cancer, heart disease. You know, which are very important goals. You know, they they look. You know, what what's killing Americans, and 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 let's and let's find ways there. But, you know, having, there's, having a cure for cancer or heart disease, you know, it's not that simple. There are all sorts of lifestyle factors. There's, oh, it's, it's, it's really a whole category. 
of diseases, you know, a, a ton of great strides has, has been made, but it's going to be a long and brutal road. Whereas an infectious disease, you know, it just hasn't been as interesting an area of research. And I think that's wrong. I think what they're missing is the, you know, kind of in finance terms, is the volatility. That yes, the bigger market seems to be cancer and heart disease, but you know, an infectious disease could just tear across the planet. And and there's all these warning signs. You know, people are ta- have been talking about, you know, virus evolution, and people have been talking about antibiotic resistant bacteria, and and still there's just not as much attention from the NIH, and and definitely far less attention from the private market. I mean, I think all of us have learned a lesson in which experts to heed and the value even during normal times of science-driven policy. Yes. But what about, I think even a, a number of scientists that I've spoken to, when you start to get into this kind of conversation about how science is funded, yes, there's enormous frustration with the status quo mechanisms. But just like we talked about with nutrition science, there's a reluctance to criticize because that can easily become co-opted by people who, who have an agenda to discredit science and science-driven policy. But I think there's also a kind of a reflexive skepticism of bringing in concepts, frankly, from finance, portfolio theory, construction, alpha and beta 100%. into the science process. It seems like that, that can't be right. right. And yet it's precisely because we are not applying those concepts, they're really managerial concepts more than finance concepts of you know, matching risk and reward and taking a diversified portfolio of approaches and then recognizing the power of individual mavericks, entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. people who have a, a different view, giving them the ability to run experiments, but not at great cost because there's also a lot of cranks and kooks and you want to, you're wind up funding a lot of junk in order to get those few winners. That's the whole point. I mean, any venture capitalist will tell you that's why we take a wide, a wide spectrum of bets at the seed stage. So have you had any luck overcoming that skepticism or how would you make the case to a scientist to say, this is not an invasion of the scientific domain by, by kind of bogus business concepts. We've seen this, seen that in the past, but there's something new here and that's something really worth listening to. The, uh, the scientists would love it. The, the pushback is, is not going to be from the scientists themselves. You, you would get so much attention. I mean, just think about, you know, the, the first, you know, venture funds that branded themselves as founder friendly, you know, before venture, you know, you know, equity financing was seen as a, as a, as a pretty unfriendly business, you know, these corporate raiders and these leveraged buyouts and these private equity hatchet men, you know, it, 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 so, and, you know, investors are able to make a huge competitive edge for themselves by investing in founders and investing in founder led companies. And guess what? That wasn't a bad idea. And a lot of the greatest, largest, most innovative companies came from that attitude shift. And you know what? Let's let's fund a few Mavericks and see what happens. Or or like Y Combinator, you know, let's let let's give a lot of people a little bit of money instead of you know doing one giant deal a year. I think that was a really good idea, and that just has not happened in science whatsoever. You know, it just shocks me. There is not. It seems like there is not a single institution that invests in research for profit. You know, the NIH just does not seem to be thinking about profits. They don't seem to be thinking about commercial. Nor is that really commercialization. Nor is that really their mandate. But why isn't there anyone that does have that mandate? Why doesn't anyone look at all the great work that's being done in these universities and finding what's close to commercialization and spinning it out? I mean, easier said than done, but, you know, there are certainly barriers there, but they they could uh, completely be be overcome. And I think that's a huge gap in in opportunity. And, you know, that that would be this, I think, beautiful thing to finally be able to bridge the worlds of science and finance and, and also, you know, pressure researchers to to, to focus, to have more of a, you know, concept of, of commercialization and, and focus on, on, you know, science that could become technology. You know, traditionally, this was done at, at some large corporations like, you know, Bell Labs and, and Xerox PARC. And, but we've hollowed out our corporations and very few have any research and development function at all. Yeah, the, that culture has completely shifted and that's left an enormous gap because you basically have these, you know, very conservative government institutions financing things that are, you know, very large and very slow and, and very safe. And you, you really don't have anyone, you know, looking, looking for, for some of these, you know, founder personas in a researcher, in a scientist. And, and that's why I, I think that, you know, overall innovation have slowed. And, and a lot of, you know, startups are just business model innovations or, or sales or operational, you know, angles just... You, I really want to see more in, inventions. I want to see more inventors. I want to see more science, you know, being commercialized. And uh, there's just this this huge this huge gulf 
And I, th I think you're right that that would be huge to apply more science concepts like portfolio theory. Like, yes, you can put the bulk of your money into something that is, is big and slow and safe. That's fine. But, you know, some percentage of it, you know, find, find some rogues, find some independent thinkers, find some contrarians. There's no shortage of them, I promise you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I heard from this great Caltech professor I was talking to, Rob Phillips, and, you know, he was telling me about his application to the NIH. And Rob Phillips is, is one of these contrarians and was these big thinkers. And it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's amazing the way his mind works. And, you know, he was telling me about, he, uh, you know, just started at Caltech and, you know, people are t giving him advice about filling out his NIH grant application. And they, he said, okay, how do I get an NIH grant? And they say, here's what you do, Rob. You, you be as conservative as you can. And then you divide that by 10. And then you submit your application. And he did that and he got it. And he says he still just lives in fear every day of losing it. You know, other areas like there's this brilliant professor at, uh, at UCLA who, who wants to study quantum biology, which I, I think is just incredibly forward thinking, incredibly fascinating, incredibly important field. But the NIH doesn't have a program. They flat out told her the NIH is not ready for quantum biology. And, you know, where, where does that leave for the, the, the Navy, the DOE? You know, are, are, well, is quantum biology going to help us build better, you know, submarines or, or missiles or power plants? You know, probably not today. Yeah, we're missing, we're missing a piece for the funding of basic research. Yeah, big piece. That can advance human progress. You know, I've been advocating for a long time uh, for entrepreneurship as a sub-discipline of management. Because I think when people hear what you're saying, uh, you know, those who have been in science labs, and I've, I've talked to a whole bunch during the, during the pandemic, where it's like, look, I'm a junior researcher. I have, a, I have a, a radical theory that could make a big difference. The only people like that who are actually doing any science right now are the ones who happen to be in a laboratory with a senior scientist who was kind of senior enough to get enough grants that they have extra kind of slush fund money that they can take some risks and no one needs to know about it. But the actual funders are not willing, fast grants accepted, to back these kinds of things. But, but I think, so, so I, I really believe in that thesis. And yet, I think a lot of people listening will say, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is, you're talking about turning science into a business. You're talking about funding cranks and kooks and contrarian is another, you know, another term for alt-right troll. And, you know, what, what happened to rigor and discipline and process? Isn't that an important part of science and R&D? And so I think we have to develop a new branch of management to answer that question and that criticism head on to say, this is not just about randomly spreading money around to any random crank. There's a method to this. And we've kind of figured it out for technology on the venture side, kind of through trial and error over many generations. Here is how you construct a venture portfolio. Here's how you make those kinds of bets. Here's how you avoid being taken in by frauds. And we're not perfect by any means, but on the whole, the system works. And yet when I talk to people who are like in technology transfer offices in universities, they're completely disconnected from that mm -hmm. ecosystem. Most universities, their tech transfer office is more concerned with protecting the university's IP which causes, which often prevents it from being commercialized in the first place. Contrast with what Stanford University did under Fred Terman's uh, pioneering leadership to get computer science innovations out of the lab mm -hmm. and into private industry. And the other thing I think is really important about this, and I want to see how, how this sits with you. A lot of this is about who will wield power in our society in the future. If, if we're not willing to have the scientists who have breakthroughs become entrepreneurs, commercialize that research, and become the wealthy philanthropists of the next generation. It's not like those people won't exist. We're just saying, oh, they're going to be from a different background. And we're not going to have scientists making philanthropic choices and not pushing our society in that direction. And I think that would be a shame. Well, who are we depending on now? You know, the, the cottage industry of family offices. I think that there's, there's definitely a, a role... Uh, to play for the powers that be. But I, I think empowering that scientific mindset and in, empowering the inventor and empowering the founder and, and the, the, uh, you know, the, the bold researcher or the, the, the philosopher kings and the inventor founders, yeah, I think that they should have more power. I think that they should have more money. I think they should have, have more say. So let me take it back to the tools for research that you're building. Because I think one of the really interesting things about your story is that whereas a lot of people are working on a diagnostic or they're working on a new drug or they're working on uh, some kind of relief effort related to the pandemic, you know, PPE for frontline workers or hunger or you name it, 
you've thrown yourself into the specific project of building a diagnostic, but you also from the beginning had this idea that you could increase the leverage of your impact by creating and then selling tools that accelerate others' research. It's almost, to me, has that kind of like platform feeling like we see in uh, software all the time. There's a, there's a kind of a software way of thinking about biology to this. Is that what you had in your mind at the time? And, and what's that been like? I didn't really think of it as, as software specifically. I just thought of it as, I just really like revenue. I like a business that is selling something. You know, I, I just remember from Paul Graham that it's, you just learn so much more talking to a customer or getting a customer to pay some amount of money for something a lot of times than you will being heads down in the lab for years. And I, I think that's a, a big shortcoming and, you know, a reason why a lot of people are afraid to invest in these so-called deep technology companies is they, they think that it's a, a total binary. They think that they're just going to work in some ad, advanced laboratory for 10 years and burn you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, and maybe they'll have something huge, maybe it'll be nothing. I just don't believe in that. I think that a, you know, scientific company, a company that's based on an innovation can find and should find a way to make revenues early. And so that was the idea here. I thought that, hey, this, I, I feel really good about this diagnostic. I'm really going to work on that. I think it's going to be big. We definitely need an antigen diagnostic. But no matter what, I know that I need a pseudovirus and other people need a pseudovirus. I know that I need pure spike protein. I need that. I know that I need structure of the full length spike protein and a lot of other people need these things. And so, you know what, I'm going to make it and I'm going to sell it to them. I think, again, I, I, let me push back a little bit because I think people who are not from an entrepreneurial background are going to be confused. They're going to say, wait a minute, you, you went into this to make money? A, that can't possibly be right given your previous background, but I thought this was a philanthropic enterprise. So try to explain why revenue is important to you, not for the money itself, but as a way of learning things that you wouldn't be able to learn any other way. And maybe give some examples of things that surprised you that you were able to learn by having that focus that maybe a strictly nonprofit lab wouldn't have been able to. Sure. I mean, first of all, there's, there's nothing wrong about with making money. In fact, that's, the, that's how you know, companies have the abilities that they do. You know, that's how they can hire people. That's how they can, you know, buy the equipment and train the people and build out supply chains. You know, revenue is, is a lifeblood of a company. I don't really believe in a company that is just a research project. I don't believe a company should just only raise money and, you know, hopefully release some world-changing product years and years and years from now. More often than not, that doesn't happen. I do think a company should get uh, to, to revenues early and find a way to do that, especially, you know, these so-called deep tech companies. But that's not the only point. You know, revenue is a means to an end. You know, really, what I want is to get this diagnostic out. You know, really, what I want is to support the development of a, a vaccine therapeutic. You know, the world needs a lot out of, the, out of the biotech industry right now. But the biotech industry also has needs. And, I, you know, selling the pseudovirus, that is, that's exactly, you know, the, the idea um, behind a public benefit corporation or social entrepreneurship is, is that, you know, you're providing value and you're making money. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to price gouge anyone. I'm. I'm not going to sell to someone that has you know ill will or nefarious in, intent with 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 these tools. But you know, there's absolutely a need for other people doing work on the virus for these tools, and they have budgets, and I I think they sh are willing to pay for these products. I mean, especially because the market for these products has gone insane. You know, pure spike protein is going for four million dollars a gram right now. It's 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 incredibly expensive. And, you know, not only making that and selling it at a lower cost, but also researching methods to make it and purify it at better scales is a way to both make money and advance the science. Give an example of something you've learned because that was your focus that maybe you wouldn't have learned otherwise. Mm, I learned a lot. I think the pseudovirus is a very interesting tool and, and, sh and should be a very important tool for infectious disease research. I learned a lot about uh, what's called the virus packaging signal. I think the way that a virus uh, replicates itself is, is frankly somewhat elegant. And it's, it almost reminds me of, you know, the idea of compression from, from software, that it, it's amazing how much information is packed into so small of a package and how much is done with, with so little and, and the way the virus has evolved to do things that way. And so, you know, researching, you know, the pseudovirus got me into these virus-like particles and there's a lot of people that have been researching vaccines based on virus-like particles. And, you know, I've learned a lot about the difference between the pseudovirus and the, you know, live coronavirus. You know, one thing that's very important, one thing I learned is probably that 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running into this issue of the uh, yeah, Pamela Bjorkman, brilliant Caltech researcher, called this out, is that for pseudoviruses, it's important that, you know, not only are you making the full length spike protein, but is that properly glycosylated? And do you have the right density? You know, if you're using this lentivirus vector, so lentivirus, HIV, maybe has seven to 10 spike proteins on its surface, but coronavirus has 50, 60. So if you're using a lentivirus backbone, how many spike proteins are you going to end up with? And how is that going to affect the performance of your assays? And so kind of making these synthetic viruses has been, you know, a, a really fascinating project. And, you know, it's also gotten me to talking a lot of people about, hey, maybe the pseudovirus isn't just a, a tool for research. Maybe something very like the pseudovirus could be a vaccine. You know, the way vaccines work traditionally is that you inject either a, a, a piece of the virus or the infectious agent, or you in, uh, inject like a kind of an inactivated version uh, of the virus, and then you, you trust your immune system to recognize it and go after it, but not be overwhelmed because it's not infectious or it's less infectious. And so I thought, okay, so the optimization there would be you want something as similar as possible to the live virus without being infectious. Well, hey, that's what the pseudovirus is. You know, if you take the pseudovirus a step farther, you know, instead of only replacing the, the full-length spike protein, you would also want to replace the membrane protein, the envelope protein, the nucleocapsid protein, which is how the uh, RNA gets uh, kind of tightly wound up, coiled inside the, the, the capsid or the membrane, the surface of the virus. And so that's gotten me into this, you know, fascinating field, which, which is, I, I think, this, you know, very fertile area of research in vaccines, which is to use these VLPs, these virus-like particles that really are, are very similar uh, to the pseudovirus. So, you know, originally I envisioned the pseudovirus just as this tool for research. You know, I needed it, other labs need it, I can provide it to them. But hey, now I'm on this interesting path of, you know, is this what the future of viral vaccines looks like? So I want to get to the vaccine topic, but I want to go back and just ask you a question. Maybe you can think just give me a short answer about this. I, just, I think it's a really critical point. And I think there's people who are really not going to follow why you're doing this as a for-profit corporation. And so I, I'm trying to get you to give an example of like something that you learned or something unexpected that's happened so far that, that happened because you were selling this and treating the other research labs that you interact with as a customer rather than just as a grantee. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like, what, what is it about that kind of entrepreneur's customer mentality why is that important to what you're doing? I think it's important because, you know, it's, you know, sales is a lot about understanding your customer's needs, not just pushing something on them. And who's your customer in this case? For the pseudovirus, you know, I am my own customer because the diagnostic is, is using it. But other research labs, such as Max Planck and, and Caltech are, and, and some other universities and even some other startups, you know, some, you know, private enterprises that are looking to run assays or or, you know, even contract us to run assays with, with their compounds. Um, so it's, it's both research institutions and companies. And, you know, research institutions, they, you know, they buy reagents, they buy tools from Thermo Fisher, from ATCC. You know, there's, there's a very important, you know, if, if Thermo Fisher didn't exist, if, if Sigma Aldrich didn't exist, and as for-profit companies, I don't think, you know, times would not be as, as, as it would not be, nearly as successful. You know, we, we need these kind of platform technologies. We, we need these companies that provide the basic tools and components um, for people to do their work. And, but then, you know, they fall short. You know, Thermo Fisher isn't selling a pseudovirus. ATCC is not selling a pseudovirus. So that creates a market opportunity. And, in, you know, in, but in talking to these customers, you learn more about your product itself. You know, in talking to this Caltech lab, I found, okay, I need to be sure, you know, not only do I have the full-length spike protein, do I have enough of these spike proteins? And are these spike proteins mm -hmm. properly glycosylated? And you know, I'm, I'm pressured to continually improve my product uh, to the demands of that customer. So talk about your work with vaccines. It sounds like you're taking kind of a different approach to, than others who are, are trying to, to bring a vaccine to market quickly. I've talked about, I've spoken with various institutions working on vaccines. I wouldn't say that the Corona Initiative is itself developing its own vaccine at least for now. But I, I would say the most promising vaccine effort I've, I've seen is something is uh, coming out of Caltech that, you know, the Bjorkman lab. So, so first of all, you know, virology hasn't been that sexy of a field in science. 
there are not that, you know, take your average institution, maybe 1% of your PIs are going to be virologists, maybe less. You know, there just hasn't been that much attention on infectious disease and viruses. You know, there was a huge burst of interest in, in the wake of, you know, HIV AIDS epidemic. And, and that has been what the Bjorkman lab uh, has been focused on to date and had some fascinating results. I also talked to the VGTI Institute at OHSU. They've been researching AIDS for 30 years. Uh, you know, I also ran into an interesting issue there is that they had such amazing results. It seemed like they got a vaccine, you know, multiple vaccines that worked really, really well in primates. And I just couldn't help but ask, why didn't this get commercialized? Why didn't this go to market? And they just said, oh, we don't do that. Oh. We're, we're set up for research and we did some great research. And then we left it. And well, I mean, they're continuing to improve it, but I mean, it just, it was so frustrating because it seemed like the results they got were so promising. And, you know, I'm sure I'm not, it would, of course, take a ton of work still to take that to market, but it just seemed interesting. Why, why did nobody take that leap? Why did, why did nobody spend that out? Why did nobody invest in that company or, or, or start that company? And it just seems like, again, there's, there's that divide, you know, no, nobody at that institution was encouraged to, to commercialize it. They just, you know, went onto the next grant, onto the next publication. Yeah. If you ever want to have a really depressing day, all you have to do is while you're on a tour of any of the existing remaining corporate research labs, just sit with researchers and say, hey, tell me about a promising invention you had in the lab <laughs> here that was never commercialized. And oh, just yeah. bust out your violin while they tell you story after story after story of places where we were, as a society, we were willing to spend the five or $10 million often to do the basic research you know, behind it but then we wouldn't spend the one or two extra million dollars that would have been necessary to run the experiment to see if it was worth commercializing. And then, and then you do, do look at the companies that raised $50, $100 million and you know, think about how innovative their products was really. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, we, we talk about the short-term thinking and the lack of long-term vision that has infected our society and our institutions at every level. Every level. This is this is like one of those symptoms that if you just look under the hood for a minute, you'll say, this does not make sense. And something right. is deeply wrong with a society that pays lip service to the need for science and wants to have technology-driven progress and yet is not really willing to make those long-term investments, does not have a commitment to seeing things successfully commercialized. You know, it sounds crass, but it's actually, that is the purpose of invention. If it doesn't serve people, why did we do it? Well, well, here's a question I ask myself a lot. If you want to be a, you know, lawyer or a politician or a civil engineer, you know, you, you, you have a career path. You, you basically know where you can go. And, you know, for a lot of those professions, okay, I can go for this bigger company, smaller company, medium-sized company, mm. whatever, but you kind of know where to go. If you want to be an inventor, where do you go? What company, what lab, what institution, you know, wh where can you go and say, hey, all right, I'm going to pay you to invent things and we're going to launch those things. That seems like a really important function for society. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. And, and I think 21st century organizations are going to have to embrace this as a corporate discipline, as an organizational discipline. This is true for governments and nonprofits and research labs alike. And the good news, if you will, is that because most organizations are so short-term focused and they're so under-optimized, under-investing in invention, those that are early in adopting this new way of working are just going to run circles around the ones that don't. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I am optimistic. You know, maybe you can kind of meet in the middle and maybe some of these long-term thinking companies can find a way to make revenue and can find a way to survive and can find some degree of short-term success in order to get them to, to the future. What do you think is going to be the long-term impact of the crisis? You know, I know we, don't, we can't really make accurate predictions right now. We're still in the middle of the chaos. But what do you at least hope will be some things that we as a society take away from what has gone wrong? Oh, I mean, some, you know, basic things like I think overall people are going to be more comfortable uh, working from home and letting their employees work from home or, or telecommute. You know, ho hopefully that translates to, to less, less traffic and less stress in commuting and, and, and less emissions. So I, I definitely think there are some positive, you know, lifestyle and environmental outcomes that, that I hope you know, last for a long time, if not forever. Let's hope. Rob, I want to thank you for taking time to, to have this conversation and, and of course for the work that you're doing. Where do you think we go from here? How do we get out of the crisis? You know, finally the, the NIH is, is coming out with these grant programs, but you know, I, 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 I do think there's room for, 
a lot of room for organizations like Fast Grants and you know fast, decisive, you know, focus on on projects that can get results quickly. You know, I, I hope that we we find better ways to spin out technology and commercialized technology that have been developed in these institutions. You know, I hope mm-hmm. we develop new institutions. You know, places for inventors, places for for people. You know, may, maybe not quite conservative enough for traditional institution. You know, I hope we focus more on infectious disease and and more on on biotech companies and and also ways to you know shore up our supply chains. You know, it it looks like. Maybe it was a little inefficient and, and fragile to ship all sorts of products around the globe. You know, I, I hope that we kind of get this kind of back to basics infrastructure and know-how and understanding um, to, you know, make our own uh, food closer to home and make our own cement and, you know, f- find ways to be more self-reliant and, and hopefully maybe even, you know, stronger communities, you know, people investing in their neighborhoods and, and you know, spending more time w- with their families and not always commuting and at work. Resilience, I think, will be a new watchword when we get to the new normal. Yeah. I want to thank you for your part playing to to get us there. I really like that resilience word. Yeah. I mean, one of my all-time favorite philosophies was uh, transcendentalism. Mm -hmm. You know, I really think a lot of the origins of American culture is is rooted in this, and I feel like we've gotten away from it a little bit. So transcendentalism is based on the belief that people are good, and if you if you give them freedom. And because people are good, you should give them more freedom. And there's also this powerful idea of, of self-reliance and this idea that, you know, you should, you should know how to take care of yourself and your family and your community. And, you know, you, sh- you should be able to rely uh, on yourself and, you know, definitely still work together. But I, I think that's a very powerful idea. And, and one, I think both of those have kind of fallen out of favor that, you know, it's so easy to just you know, order something online or, or, or Google something and instead of really, really learn it or get trained or, or teach. I hope that there's, you know, greater depth of knowledge and understanding uh, to come from this and, and, you know, ways that we can really support ourselves and rely on ourselves, not on very distant or very large, or very complex corporations and, and supply chains. Awesome. Robert, really, thank you for your time and uh, for all your work in this area. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Reese. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Jacob Tender and Sean McGuire. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting by Breaker. For more information on the COVID-19 crisis and ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you are working on a project related to the pandemic, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S. Thanks for listening.